Miss Sally is going to be reading from Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your copy of the scripture, please turn there with us. If you're using the Bible in the front of you, in the seat, it is on page 819. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it was, it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Dear Father, thank you for access to your holy word. We praise you for your grace has allowed us the freedoms that we enjoy in this country to own our own personal copy of the Bible and to gather here to read and to study it without fear of persecution. Father, keep us from complacency in this freedom because so many in our world do not share it. Give us more and more of your grace, Father. Give us a greater delight in your word so that we will be deeply rooted in your truths. Thank you that your word is Holy Spirit inspired, full of power and life, able to save and restore and transform us into the likeness of Christ by the renewing of our minds. Thank you, Father, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, revealing your truth and your wisdom as we follow close by Jesus in this world. Guide our steps and help us to be your witnesses in this world. Father, we commit this time to you as we listen to the teaching of your word, that you would be made known and glorified in this body of believers. Holy Spirit, empower Kevin as he leads us in your truth, and open the eyes of our hearts that we would have greater understanding, greater obedience, and greater joy. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Miss Sally. So for the first time in 30 years of doing things like this, I double booked without even looking at my calendar. My cousin uh, messaged me, my distant cousin, she said, hey, will you do my wedding? I'm about to get married. I, she, I was like, when is it? She was like, it's on a Sunday morning. I was like, okay, what time? She said, nine o'clock. I said, great. Nine o'clock, I'm doing nothing on Sunday mornings. I'm in. Little did I know that I'd already told Pastor Nathan that I would help him uh, 
preach this Sunday because he was going to be out of town for school. And so I double booked. I just did a wedding. That's why I look like this, okay? I swore when I stopped pastoring that I would never wear a suit again unless I was forced to do so with great harm threatened to my body. And so I have one. I own one. I don't like it, um, but I'm going to wear it just because it's going to drive you nuts while I do. So... um, All that being said, if you don't know this about me, I want you to know this about me. As a matter of fact, I'm okay with telling you this every time I stand in this pulpit. Of the many ways that I think I can serve and help our church, one of the ways that I want to serve and help our church is by serving and helping our pastors. Okay? It's that's bottom line. And so when they ask, I say yes. It's what I do. Um, Because my experience has lent it. I started pastoring when I was 20 years old, 21 years old. You know how old that is? How many of you remember when you were 20? How many of you can't remember back that far? We got some who aren't even 20 yet, and they go, I remember. Yeah, I was, I was, I was there just like yesterday. I remember it. That's great. Um, and so uh, all of that life experience and all of the things that I've learned and all of the ways that I failed and could have done better, I just watch. And, and Grace Harbor, hear me, please. Um, our pastors are putting in so much work into being better followers of Jesus, better husbands, better fathers, better shepherds, better, better students of the word, better, better presenters of the word, and we should be proud of that. We should be grateful for that. And so when they ask, I say yes. However, I've held Amelia for the past four weeks at church during the preaching, and I would rather do that than preach any day of the week. So, so this is your last shot, Pastor. Get it while you got it, because that grandbaby. And the Bradleys are back, so now I really have to share. If you guys want to go back to Japan, I'm okay with that. I'm really not a great sharer. I thought I was better at this. So let's dive into Matthew chapter 13. Hopefully you have your copy of the scriptures open there. And if you've been keeping track with the conversation that is taking place in Matthew chapter 13, which I hope you have, if you haven't, you can read. You can even cheat and read some of the headings in the text. But what Jesus has started to do here is he started to teach about the kingdom of God in what the Bible refers to as parables. Everybody familiar with what we're talking about so far? Okay. And this is very different from the way that Jesus has taught up to this point. It's different than the way that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. It is so different, in fact, that his disciples take note. In verse number 10, they ask him, Lord, why do you speak in parables? So, Even his followers, his closest followers, notice that, hey, there's something different about what Jesus is doing here. And he's doing this for a very important reason. This teaching or the way that he's presenting this truth begins to weed out careless hearers from earnest seekers. And I wish I had time to deal with that. Pastor Nathan has dealt with some of that. Uh, Jordan dealt with some of that. Uh, And it's really worth your time and study to think about some of the reasons why Jesus used these parables. I mean, he talks about this, and the fact that he talks about this reveals to us that it's important for us to understand why he does this. But all of that I really don't have time to do today. But what I do want to do this morning is I want to recenter us Well, not how Jesus is teaching, but what he's teaching about. This is very important, okay? He's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Did you read that there? 
The kingdom of heaven is like, again, in verse number 45, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he comes down in verse number 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the context here, the point here, the subject matter that Jesus is dealing with is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Above 32 times, Matthew uses this phrase or a phrase like it in his gospel, and 13 or 12 of those are in this chapter alone, and so it's important for us to understand what this kingdom is about. And so it's an incredibly dense subject in Scripture. And I, and I feel like this. I feel like any attempt to summarize the kingdom of God would be inadequate. That being said, let me try to summarize it. <laughs> okay? The kingdom of God is very simply the rule and reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Okay? It is the rule and reign of God in Jesus Christ and especially, specifically, within the hearts of men. And so perhaps this is an oversimplification, but if you're like me, you kind of need some of those things. Here's a good way to think of the kingdom of God. When King Jesus has his way, period. When King Jesus has, well, you say, well, doesn't King Jesus have his way? Doesn't King Jesus have his way? Sean is on top of it. Yes, he does. But there are other kingdoms in this broken world, right? So let me give you a quick recap or a quick, quick summary of the kingdom of God. So the Bible assumes the position that God is always on his throne. God is where? Say that with me. Always on his throne. Always on his throne. Psalm 45, verse number 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Listen to the way the scriptures close. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That's for those of us who are afraid of water. I believe that promise is just for me. Jesus made it. We won't have to swim in heaven. Praise God. That probably is not what that means, but just let's pretend like it does. John goes on and he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, family of faith. As John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Do you understand how personal that is? That is not him speaking to our bodies, saying, tears be gone. Do you know how close you have to get to wipe somebody's tears away? Listen, I've hugged enough people today, and Brian, I'm praying, brother, don't do it again. I'm just kidding. Somebody told Brian I loved hugs, and everybody knows that I don't. And Brian now knows, but he still does it, because the Lord has given him a spirit of stubbornness. Um, and, and so, but to wipe away the tears, and I don't know how literal all that is, but I do think that the imagery that the scripture uses is important, that this will be a very personal and real and rich experience, for there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Listen, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Right, for these words are true and faithful. The Bible assumes that God is ever on his throne. And here's what the Bible also asserts. 
The Bible also asserts that everything is beyond good when humanity and creation live in alignment with his rule and his reign. It is so good, in fact, that we don't even have categories for the good that it is. Like we attempt to describe it, but words would fail. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you will read there about how not just is it good, but God himself said it is very good. And the categories I don't even think we have to describe. But when everything lives in alignment with the rule and reign of God, everything works and everything is as it should be. And that's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches that when things are not in alignment with the rule and reign of God, then everything is broken. Listen to me, family of faith. I want to be absolutely clear about this. That every human wrong and every human woe comes because we are out of alignment with the rule and the reign of God. Every corrupt justice system, every ounce of pride and hate and prejudice and racism, every ounce of poverty and sickness and disease, every storm and tsunami and earthquake, all of that stems from the resistance and the rebellion against the rule and the reign of God that started in Genesis chapter 3. That's why the world is broken. It is broken because of the resistance to the rule and the reign of God and the enemy who has set himself up to establish many counterfeit kingdoms against God. And therefore, the only solution to this broken world, hear me, is for God himself to step in and redeem us and reestablish his rule within our hearts, and from within the hearts of men extend that rule and reign into all creation once again. And this is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise of Scripture, that God himself will come to redeem us, and he will come to reestablish his rule and reign within the hearts of humanity, and from the hearts of humanity he will extend it to all creation once again, and all oppression will cease, and all wickedness will be stopped, and all things will be made new, and every single thing will be made right. And the Old Testament closes with this great anticipation of this promise becoming reality, of this faith finally becoming sight, and then there are 400 years of silence. What a letdown. And then Jesus shows up, and man, Jesus is bold. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus went about all Galilee, Matthew tells us, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. The point here is this, that Jesus shows up on the scene out of the blue and he says, hey, you know that promise you were waiting for? It's here because I'm here. Like This is what he says, the kingdom of God, God stepping in to redeem and reestablish his rule and his reign has started because I am here. The kingdom of heaven has invaded this present world because the king himself has invaded this present world. The kingdom, my friend, is ultimately, and you must hear this, the kingdom is ultimately about the king. And if we make the kingdom, and there is a tendency to do this in even in evangelical circles today, to make the kingdom about the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom, but it's not about the blessings and the benefit of the kingdom, it's about the king. The blessings and the benefits, as beautiful and great as they are, are wrapped up in the king. And without the king, there is no kingdom. 
It is all about King Jesus. And Jesus says, I am here. And because I am here, the kingdom is here. In Matthew, we see this unfold. We see the impact of the king and his kingdom arriving in this space of time. And all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people are being healed. Lepers are being made whole. The lame are made to walk. Fevers are being banished. Nature itself is bowing to the authority of her king. Demons are trembling and fearing. Sins are being forgiven. Sinners are being invited to come and follow. Death itself is bowing to this king. We see it in Matthew. See, my friend, when King Jesus has his way, all that is wrong is made right. But these are, in Matthew, at least for the moment, but a foretaste of glory divine. You know what a foretaste is? Anybody eating Thursday? Anybody eating Thursday? You're afraid to say yes because you're afraid I'll show up at your front door, aren't you? And I will. I'm not, like I'm asking, like I'm looking for places to go. No. So most of us are going to stand in the kitchen while the meal is being cooked, and what are you going to do? Don't lie. It's church. Don't lie. What are you going to do? Sneak a little taste. Sneak a little taste. Sneak a little taste. And eventually you will probably have snuck so many tastes that you won't have any room left for the actual meal. Anybody? Okay, but some of you are more disciplined that, and some of you will get just enough of a taste. Oh, man, that's good. That's good, and I'm ready for more. And the healings and the ministry of Jesus in his lifetime, do you know what they were? Foretastes. Like you've been in the kitchen snacking, and you know the whole meal is coming. Because there's coming a day when not kind of some sort of diseases will be healed. All of them will be done away with. Not a few tears will be wiped away, but every tear will be wiped away. Not some death will die, but all death will die. Do you understand? There is a day coming when not some things will be made right, but everything will be made right. Man, isn't that good? Doesn't that thrill your soul as a child of the king? And as Jesus is going throughout his ministry... The kingdom that he is bringing and has started begins to interact with this world and this space and this time. And what the parables do is they unpack how that all happens. And if you really want to get nerdy about things, you can actually read everything that Jesus explains in Matthew 13 is actually happening in the previous chapters of Matthew. It's really interesting how this all kind of unfolds. But Jesus is sowing the seeds of his kingdom. And this is good news of great joy. It is rest for the souls of the weary and the heavy laden. But not everybody wants it. His seed doesn't always fall on good ground. No, as a matter of fact, they want the kingdom, but they really don't want the king who brings it. And so some of the glorious news of his kingdom is sown on hearts uh, that do not understand. And when it does, the wicked one comes in and he steals it away. It falls on hearts that do not allow it to settle in deep and grow roots. And when troubles come, they abandon ship. It falls on hearts that allow it to be choked out by the things of this world. But there are those in Jesus' life and ministry in whom the kingdom falls on good hearts and good soil. Whose eyes are open. Some close their eyes to the king. But some eyes are open. To be certain, there is opposition. There is an enemy who sows wheat right next 
or weed right next to the wheat, right? If you're a King James person, you want to say tares, right? Uh, When did we, I need to say tares because that's the only thing that makes sense in my mind, right? So he sows tares among the wheat and all of these things. And Jesus is very clear. There is a real opposition. There is a real enemy. And he is ever at work trying to seek, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus is not scared a bit of this enemy. Do you understand that? He is not threatened in any way. Jesus teaches that one day even his opposition will come to a screeching halt and it will be no more. So in spite of the harsh soils, in spite of the opposition, like a mustard seed, his kingdom will grow and do its intended work. Like leaven, it will succeed in doing what we don't even see it doing until finally all things are made new. That is the kingdom of God. And it has already begun in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has invaded our space and our time. And we are living in the in-between. Where it started, but it isn't fully finished. But it's going to be fully finished. And so with that as our backdrop, let's read again in verse 44 and understand what Jesus is teaching as he lands this plane of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in verse 44, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls and who, when he has found one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And these two parables together, they sound familiar, right? They sound similar, don't they? And that's probably because they are, probably intended to be that way. And when the scripture repeats something, it repeats it for emphasis. Your parents ever had to say anything twice? Let me repeat it. You ever had to say anything twice, right? You see what you're doing? You repeat it for emphasis. And, and listen, I'll tell you, to be honest, there are many different interpretations about what happens here. For the next 20 minutes, I'm right. Can we just agree with that? You guys with that? We can talk about it all you want to. I, I get that there are different interpretations of this, but there seems to be at the heart of what Jesus is doing in these two parables, he's emphasizing the worth of the kingdom of God. The treasure found, the pearl of great value, both seem to communicate the same concepts. That is, what is found in Christ and in his kingdom are worth giving up everything for. The one stumbles onto the treasure, the merchant is seeking the pearl, but both of them arrive at this place where what they find is so valuable that they would gladly, not forced, but gladly part with anything and everything in order to have the one thing. They sell everything. It's irrevocable. Have you ever sold everything? Like completely everything. Their action is immediate and entire. There's this great earnestness and diligence in seeking and securing that which is worth everything. And listen, before we get off track, the parable is not meant to communicate that we can purchase the kingdom of heaven. We know that, right? Everybody do this. We don't purchase any gifts from God. The king purchased the gifts from God. Everybody do this. The king paid your price. There is no more price to be paid. That's the way this kingdom works. All of the debt has been assumed by the one who held the note. And he paid it fully. So that's not what this communicates. What this communicates is that there is of such great infinite worth the king and his kingdom. 
That what we have found in Jesus Christ and his kingdom is far more valuable than anything and everything. It is the one thing worth giving up everything for. Because in the economy of the kingdom, we will never give more than we gain. Never. Never will we give more than we gain. The point is, seems to be, excuse me, that the kingdom is worthy of everything, both for the king and for its subjects. And so you can follow this out in scripture. Peter later in Matthew will say, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus will later teach in Luke chapter 14 that if a man does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Paul will later in Philippians, and man, it is beautiful. He reveals his own heart when he says that whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he uses these terms. Indeed, I have counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is of extreme importance in the parables for Peter, for the disciples, for Paul. It is not a forced surrender. The merchant and the man who found the treasure are not forced to sell everything they have. They sell it because they want to sell it, because they have done the math, and they realize that something is better. Anybody here old enough to remember Yosemite Sam? No, just a couple of you, okay? Remember how he would just shoot at Bugs Bunny, and he would make Bugs Bunny dance? Anybody? Anybody with me? There's a way to make people dance. Shoot at their feet. There's a better way to make people dance. Play music they'll dance to. Grace that is forced is not grace. It's not how grace works. God does not shoot at your feet, though he can. He plays a better song. And that music invites you to dance. Because his way is better it is beautiful. There is no possession greater. There is no beauty greater than Jesus and his rule and his reign. And that's what he's communicating to us. I believe that his kingdom and his rule and his reign are worth it. They're worth everything. Everything that I endure will be redeemed. Everything that I renounce will bring freedom. Everything that I sacrifice will pale in comparison to what I gain. George boy, you got your baby? You do have your baby? She does? Then you don't have her. Come here. He hasn't had to run errands for me in a long time. So, no, no. He owes me some. Jesus then tells a parable about the net in verse 47 through 50. Read it with me again. And the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea, and it gathered fish of every kind indiscriminately. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down, and they sorted out into good containers, and they threw away the bad. You get the picture? Good fish, bad fish. Throw away the bad fish, keep the good fish. So it will, in the end, it will be in the end of the age, the angels will come out, and they will separate from the evil, the righteous, and they will throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen, this is heavy, but I think what Jesus is doing here is he's communicating the certainty of his coming rule and reign in its entirety. Thank you, Bob. Good kid. I don't care what mom said. Oh, he even put ice in it. Man, I raised him well. Um, 
So this parable closely resembles the parable that Jordan taught about last week about the uh, wheat and the weeds. And it just note the phrase here um, in verse number 49 that it will be in the end of the what? End of the age. This is talking about things that are still to come. And so um, the principle is similar that to the principle of the parable of the weeds. One day all that causes sin, all that causes stumbling... And all lawbreakers, Jesus says in that parable, will be separated from his people. And it sounds harsh. And it is heavy. Don't misunderstand me. And I don't have time to deal with all that, but I think C.S. Lewis's words are wise. Where's Rick? Is he here? He's out there. Rick, please tell me you heard me talk about C.S. Lewis again in church just for you, buddy. Um, C.S. Lewis said, there's really only two options. Those who say to Christ, your will be done, and those to whom Christ says, your will be done. No, it's heavy. But do you understand this? Heaven will be hell for some. It will be. Now, they might not know it. They might not understand it. They might not understand the weight that they're missing. But some people don't want Jesus. They don't. Now we tell them, we love them, we draw them, the Holy Spirit works. All the things are true. But some people are defiant in their rejection. Jesus is not shocked by this and we should not be shocked by this either. And so it's heavy, it's weighty, I get it. But as his children, it's beautiful. Because you know why? Because there's coming a day when everything that causes sin and causes us to stumble will be fully and finally eradicated. Gone. Period. Never to rear its ugly head anymore. Can I tell you something? I've lived my life understanding that sin is bad. You with me? Sin is bad. Shake your head. Sin is bad. I'm beyond the point of sin is bad, and I understand the tyranny and the evil dictator that sin is. It shows no mercy. It ruins hearts. It breaks. It breaks lives. It destroys relationships. It is no friend. It is a foe beyond our imagination and beyond our categories. And it has ruined the lives of thousands and thousands. It is ruined. I've tasted and seen its tyranny. And there is coming a day when it will be put to death. That's good, good, good news. Oh, Jesus is coming back. Yes, celebrate that, dear friend. But when he comes back, all things will be made right. And this is more certain than death and taxes. It is far more certain than death and taxes. And I think that's the point Jesus is making here, is that, listen, for all of the opposition that is and all of the chaos that is, my kingdom is coming. And when my kingdom is fully here, everything will be made right. i got to quickly go. Verse 51 and verse 52. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked to his disciples. And they said yes. Did they really? I don't know, but I think they understood more than they did when they started. And you want to know what the reality is? Jesus doesn't need us to know everything. I'd written this sermon, uh, I don't know, finished it Saturday morning or something. Sitting in a chair going through the stress of the OU football game. thinking about that wedding I had to do this morning and how I was going to shift gears to preaching and all this kind of stuff. And I was sitting there and I grabbed my tablet while I was watching a TV show with my wife and I was just sitting there rewriting it. And I put my tablet down and just, that stinks. Rewrite. Oh, that stinks. Oh, that stinks. Oh, that stinks. And she looks at me and she goes, you know, he doesn't need us to be perfect. 
Cha-ching. <laughs> and he doesn't need us to know it all. His disciples didn't know everything, but they knew more than when they started. And the point that Jesus makes from here is this. He says this. Listen. And the word scribe here gets confusing, but just follow the train of thought. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, his disciples have just now been trained for the kingdom of heaven. And they are now like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So we go to community group with the Moore family. Um, and if you don't know this about me, you probably don't need to know this, but I really don't belong in a kitchen or around in a grocery store or around food. Just horrible at it. I panic. I freeze. I dry. And so I just, this week I told Chelsea, as they host this community group in their home, I'm like, Chelsea, I brought this dip. I don't even know what you put in it. I don't know what you dip it with. It was it with a chip? Is it with pretzel? Is it with a piece of bread? Is it what? I brought, I brought some, bought some nan because Ben doesn't like it because it's not even real. And so, I mean, I tried all of these things. And, and, I, and Chelsea, here's what Chelsea does. Oh, don't worry about it. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. And Jesus is using a picture that is very similar to Chelsea. He's saying, when you have it, you now have it to give. And he says, so when you've learned about the kingdom and you've been taught, you are now to teach. When you've been blessed, you are now to bless. What God has given to his disciples, he expects his disciples to give to others, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is actually how his kingdom spreads to every known part of humanity and every known part of creation. He takes those who taste the kingdom of God. And he says, now you go and share the treasures for the benefit and blessings of others. What you've learned, share. What you've tasted, give. Your grasping, your understanding, your learning obligates you now to be generous with the very treasure that you found. Because Jesus having his way is not only good news for you, it is good news for all. This is good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. The king has come and the redemption of all things is fully underway. And it extends to all the earth through the citizens of his kingdom. So, got to land this plane. What do we do now? We're in a different context and a different culture all these years later. And in reality, Jesus doesn't explicitly command anything in this text. You with me? But Jesus' teachings are always for the doing. Shake your head again. Maybe the only exercise you get this week. Jesus' teachings are always for the doing. And so what do we do with these teachings? How do we live in light of the realities of his rule and reign? He says to the crowds in this text and to his disciples in this text that he who has ears, let him hear. It means seek to understand it, to grasp it, to obey it, to live in light of these realities of the king and his kingdom. To put it another way, to live as though he actually is king. And he will indeed have his way. So let me give you a couple of things to think about as we close this today. And I want to talk to you about postures, not actions. You've learned, right, that life is situational. There's no clear-cut method to do everything. Some days you've got to be blunt with your children. Other days you've got to be graceful and majestic even, right? And life just, different situations call for different things. And so I don't want to just talk about practices because practices as important they are, as they are are really not what we're after. We're after an overall settled condition of the heart towards life. To where my heart responds to life in a way that honors Christ the King, regardless of what life is at the moment, because I don't get to control what life is at the moment. 
And so I'm talking about a posture, the way that I engage. Because there are moments when I see the grace of God drenching everything I experience. There are other times when I see and I can't feel. All I see and feel is the tyranny of sin and brokenness. And most of the time, life is some cocktail of the two. And what I want in following Jesus is to be able to interact with every detail of life and every situation in a way that honors Christ as my king because I'm prepared to do so. Because I'm prepared to do that. So one of my things that I've talked about a long time is that when I get on the highway, I instantly become very grumpy, like extremely grumpy, right? I, I had to pass the Poplins just earlier just to get into the church parking lot, and I felt really guilty about it for all of about two seconds. But I get on the highway, and here's what I was thinking to myself the other day. How come I'm not nicer when I get on the highway? I want to be nicer when I get on the highway. You want to know why I'm not nicer when I get on the highway? Because I'm prepared to be evil when I get on the highway. I'm not actually prepared to be nice. I just kind of want to be nice, but I'm prepared to be angry. What if, hold on, what if through practice, repetition, and grace, and the Spirit of God, we were actually prepared to engage life as if Jesus was and is king? Oh, man, wouldn't that be better? So what is this posture? Let me give you three of them, because every preacher has to have three. A yielded heart, a confident heart, and a generous heart. Jesus tells us about the worth of the kingdom and how that it is the one thing worth giving up everything for. And you may not be called to give up everything, but please be clear about this. Following Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, does necessarily involve sacrifice. Loving and walking with Jesus, saying yes to Jesus, may cause us to say no to a thousand other things. But please hear me. If he ever calls me to say no to something, it will always be for something better. It will always be for freedom and life. It will never be oppressive or harsh or ugly. It will always bring life to those who obey. Oh man, listen, this doesn't fly. It didn't fly in Jesus' context. It won't fly in our context. This is a hard sell. Self-denial doesn't fly in an age of self-fulfillment. When every man is king and every woman is queen, Jesus as the king will always cause problems. And I must tell you that this has invaded everything that we do and think about as a society. Words like rule and reign and authority and surrender sound oppressive and restrictive in a culture like ours. And it bleeds into everything that we do. Mark Sayers says this, that our hidden heresy under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. Sky Jathani says, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimalized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And listen to this, and above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. King Jesus will always present a problem with that. He will. But indeed, saying yes to Christ may require us to say no to a thousand other things. But if we've done the math, that's okay. Because we will never give more than we gain. It will never be to our harm or to our hurt. It will be sweet to the one who considers the worth of following King Jesus. His will will be life-giving to the one who yields. 
This is the beauty of his rule and his reign. It is always for our good. And life only works when we live in alignment with that rule. Dallas Willard says the over, self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. Better described as death to self. He says, in this and this alone, self-denial, lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self. And it cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. What does he mean? He means this, that it's really hard to follow Jesus if you want to play king. Really hard to follow Jesus. And so knowing that the kingdom is better opens my hands and my hearts. It not only does that, but it gives me a confident heart. If King Jesus is really going to bring his rule and his reign in its entirety, and that's absolutely certain, that should give me an abiding confidence in him. I'm not talking about theoretical faith that works in the church house. I'm talking about a deep and active trust in his kingdom that it will reach its long-awaited conclusion and no opposition or no threat will ever prevent him from having his way. My heart should then be filled with faith, deep and active trust in which I live as if he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do and I don't have to have X happen and I don't have to have X not happen for my life to be okay because I trust that the king is doing what the king said he would do and even if he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death he has never steered my heart wrong. He has always been good to me and he has always done right by me and it doesn't matter what I experience because the king is the king and nothing changes that. Listen, I'm not talking about Sunday morning faith. I'm talking about faith that is deep in my soul. When life doesn't work and when it hurts and when it stings and when it bites and when it rears its ugly head in evil and oppression. Listen, listen, the king coming back and establishing his rule and his reign ought to fill my heart with faith that he will do what he said. And it ought to open my hands. I'm sorry. Listen, I'm excited, guy. You didn't know this about me. I know. If the reign of King Jesus is such a treasure worth sharing, like Chelsea brings out of her home, then my posture should be one of abounding generosity. If I have tasted and seen that he is good, and friend, I have tasted and seen that he is good, then I have done so that I might share it with you that he is good. If I have been blessed, I have been blessed that I might be a blessing. If I have been taught, I have been taught that I might teach. If I've understood, I've understood that I might share one of the things that is so easy to lose sight of is that the goodness of his rule and reign that he has given to me is never solely for my benefit alone, but it is for the benefit of all of those around me. Church, hear me. God has not just been good to us for us. He has been good to us so that he might be good through us. Good through us. It is designed to flow through his people to others. This is the primary way in which he spreads his good way to the ends of the earth. So where do we start? Oh man, the simple thing is we start with the next thing. We don't do this in a day. But I believe that probably today you'll have a chance to say my will or your will, Father. And in that moment, Try something. Try his will. I'm not asking you to bat a thousand and to fix your life here in the spot. I'm asking you to make one step. Next thing that you're presented with, and you have a choice between your will and his will, just make a decision, even if you don't feel like it. I don't, I'm not really worried about your feelings right now. Do it and see where it goes from there. 
Next time you have a chance to doubt or to trust, just say, Father, I, need, I, know, I know I need help with faith. I help my unbelief. I don't have enough, but I'm choosing to trust you right now and live as though you will actually do what you say and you will never do me harm. And next time you have an opportunity to be generous with the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, share it. I used to live under the impression, this is the way my dad used to work with me. My sons can quote it. My, da- my daughter-in-law can now quote it. Your, your daughter's pretty sharp, by the way. You knew that, though. My dad would always used to tell me, he'd say, son, I'm not trying to tell you how to run your life, but. <laughs> and then he would fill in the blank with how he thought I. And listen, I used to think, you know what? Never going to do that to my kids. Never going to do that to my kids. I've done it, huh, but Okay. But here's the difference now. I'm not even ashamed of it anymore. Like, I'm not even trying to hide from it anymore. I don't believe the Lord had brought me this far, and I don't believe he gave me those kids to be quiet. I don't believe that anymore. I don't, I'm not imposing on them. If we want to talk about imposition, I will give them the receipts, right? <laughs> they lived with me for a long time. I'll give them the receipts. They were never an imposition to me. And me trying to give something that God has given to me is by no means imposition on this world, dear friends. God has given it to us so that we would give it to others. Hands down. Stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, thank you for grace and mercy that is good. Lord Jesus, thank you for being king. Thank you for bringing your kingdom. When we can't see it, when we can't feel it, when we can't hear it, it's still true. More certain than death and taxes. More certain, certain than the rising and the setting of the sun. You are king, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom has been inaugurated. And it is on its way to absolute and full fulfillment. And everything will be made right. And your people will look back and they will see. They will clearly, we will clearly see. And there will never be again a question in our mind that you have done right by us. And you have always only done right by us. Fill our hearts with faith now. We'll fill our hearts with yieldedness and surrender in a culture of self-fulfillment. Let us be a people who gladly want what you want and will gladly lay anything down that is in opposition or competition with it. And Father, fill our lips with praise. Fill our tongue with joy. The joyful shouts of the good news of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we ask it in your name. Amen. As we come to the table.